Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this uh, second day that you have provided, Lord. We pray your blessing over, over our hearts as we receive your word. We pray your blessing over our minds as we gain information, Lord. We pray your blessing over the connection and the things that you are allowing, Lord. We're so thankful for this space and this time. And we're so thankful for you, Lord, and for the work that you allowed on the cross with Jesus so that we could know you. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first day, awesome to be together. Our first day, I loved seeing little pockets of y'all connecting um, the sweetest thing. We are here to be encouraged, to be equipped, but also to connect with one another, to remember we're not doing this all on our own. And y'all, all of this, All of the equipping, all of the connecting, all of the encouragement, it is rooted in, anchored, foundationally built on God's gracious love for us. All of this talk about calling, all of this talk about being sent, this discussion about mission All that you are hearing about every tribe and every tongue, y'all, it is love. And I particularly enjoy the Apostle John talking about love. He says that he is the one whom Jesus loved. His very identity is wrapped in the fact that Jesus loved him. He has some things to say about love. And we can trust and listen because he walked this earth with love himself. So in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, this is what John has to say. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them how can the love of god be in that person dear children let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth That last verse says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The message paraphrases it this way. It says, My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And that's what these three days are all about. Not just talking about love, but putting God's love into practice, into motion, into mission. And so our next three speakers are going to do just that. They are going to encourage and equip us on how to love God and to love his people, particularly during a pandemic through the lens of data. It's going to be fascinating. And so there are three. The first that we're going to hear from is Dr. Phil. And he comes from a diverse background in medical, in the medical field, particularly in pediatrics and in research. And then we're going to hear from Dr. Burton Lee. He comes to us from the National Institute of Health. 
And then Dr. Susan Hillis, and she comes from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Y'all, we know that is the CDC. So we have just the sweetest lineup that's going to equip and encourage us in the sweetest way. We're going to start with Dr. Phil. He had planned to be here in person and at the last minute was unable to, but we have an awesome video where he is going to teach us. So let's give our attention to Dr. Phil. God is love. Because he loves, we have the privilege of gathering together in person and remotely. Because he loves, we gather together to worship, to express our love for him. Because he loves, we gather together to consider how to use our backgrounds, training, and experience to make his love manifest to others. We're a bit like Moses in Acts 7.22. Educated with the best the world has to offer, yet willing to leave comfort and safety behind, willing to align with God's purposes, willing to align with God's people. Yes, God is love. This all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, eternal, infinite God loves us. Because he loved us, we can love him. But how should we, finite creatures, love him, the infinite God? We should love him completely. That's what Jesus told an educated man in Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We, like Moses, are educated. We, like Moses, love God no longer with our emotions, our eternal selves and our physical strength. Jesus also instructed us, as he instructed the lawyer, to love God intellectually with our minds. Of course, loving God with our minds is not a new idea. The Bible often calls us to use our brains. Consider, consider the ravens, consider the lilies, learn from biology how to live. Consider the sufferings of this present time. In the day of adversity, consider, consider with your mind so you know how to face difficult times. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Use our minds to help live within the body. Reason. Come, God said. Come, let us reason together. Think, we're told in the New Testament. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Think about these things. Love God with your minds. Love God as you consider reason, and think. We love God with our minds, and we love others. And then there was COVID. The pandemic wreaks havoc with heart, souls, bodies, and minds. The pandemic wreaks havoc with relationships, with families, and even with churches. And God calls us, the medically educated, to align ourselves with him, his purposes, and his people, God calls us to use our minds to love him and to love others. Loving God, we should love others. As Jesus said in John 13, unbelievers should know we're Christians by our love for each other. Instead, some frustrated Christians opted not to return to church when COVID-induced pandemic restrictions were lifted. Sadly, some churches have even broken apart over intellectual interpretation of personal protective measures and public health interventions. We need, and the world needs, 
godly, educated healthcare workers to love God with their minds as they demonstrate love to others. So as students, educators, and evidence-based healthcare workers, we love God with our minds. For the last couple of decades, the RIME, R-I-M-E mnemonic, has characterized the stages of physician education, stages that are relevant for nurses and therapists and others as well. R-I-M-E, report, interpret, manage, educate. In fact, these are the stages of growth as we use our minds to love God while serving as healthcare professionals. During initial training years, students become R, reporters. We learn how to talk to patients, how to gather information by examining patients, and how to coherently assemble the relevant information to communicate, to report our findings. Of course, we need to make sure we're getting the facts straight. If a child tells me as a pediatrician that his stomach hurts, I won't limit my thoughts to just one part of the gastrointestinal system. I know that stomach to a child can include anything related to the abdomen, intestines or liver or kidneys or pancreas or whatever. We need to choose good sources of information and we need to carefully gather and then accurately report information. Sadly, some of the fighting during the pandemic has been because people, Christians even, choose to limit their input to biased, unproven sources of information. Once we do our history and physical, once we've gathered facts about a situation, we then need to, I, interpret our facts. What do the findings mean? If a patient has a high fever and a cough and can no longer smell or taste, what might the interpretation or explanation be for those symptoms? As we progress in medical knowledge, we learn to interpret our findings. We learn to consider various possible diagnoses. We learn to decide which diagnosis fits best with the findings we've identified. False conclusions are still false, even if presented lovingly. For our patients and for our fellow believers, we must interpret information wisely with discernment. The R and the I of rhyme are kind of like loving God in order to effectively love people. We use our minds to know and to interpret the facts, the facts even as we use our minds to love God. Then we turn to loving others and we still use our brains. Humility should guide our learning and our use of knowledge. With Jesus-style humility, we can focus on others. The M of rhyme is to manage our patients. We gathered accurate facts and fit the facts into an accurate diagnosis. What will we do about it? Of course, we'll treat the patient. We'll manage the illness. We'll choose appropriate therapy and figure out feasible ways to get the treatment to the patient. We won't get distracted by untrue information and we won't get derailed by unproven theories. We'll use our brains at each step of the process. We'll be careful to think critically to use the facts and the interpretation of facts to figure out how to help others. Along the way, we must leverage trust to speak truth. Neither patients nor colleagues will trust us if they don't feel like we actually care for them. As the old saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I take care of a lot of adolescents, adolescents with long-term debilitating symptoms. 
I realize that they're bright enough to figure out within a few nanoseconds if they're going to trust me enough to follow my management plan. I need to use my brain to figure out how to relate to an adolescent. I need to be understood thoughtfully or else I'll lose all opportunity to help. R-I-M-E, rhyme continues to E, educate. Many of us have the pleasure of moving beyond patient care to engage in medical education. Indeed, medical education missions is a growing field for service. We don't just tell patients to take this medicine. Rather, we explain the diagnosis and treatment so they'll understand. There is truth to the notion that knowledge is power, and we can empower our patients to engage in health-enhancing treatments and behaviors. But education requires discernment and wisdom. We must use our minds to understand how to wisely treat others. Jesus was gentle in his approach to people with sincere questions, yet he was firm in his approach to the self-righteous who weren't open to input. We will approach people differently as we discern their perspectives and needs. Of course, we aren't just talking about the education of future healthcare workers. We're also talking about how we educate about facts we hear all around us. Do masks transmit, do, or excuse me, do masks reduce the transmission of pathogenic viruses? Do vaccines have side effects? These are straight up questions for ex- are accurate scientific answers available. We should seek those answers from reliable sources. We are a report. We gather information. Then we must, I, interpret that information. Yes, there are risks as well as benefits, and the risks and benefits vary by age and health status. We must interpret the reported information and make it relevant to individuals to help different population groups. Then we will be empowered to act, to M, manage the situation, to decide what is the most sensible plan for us and for others. Meanwhile, the world needs us to share the knowledge, to share potential applications, to E, educate others. RIME, R-I-M-E. The mnemonic helps us understand the stages of medical education, and it also helps us understand how God uses our minds as he develops and uses us in communities who need both truth with a capital T and truth with a small t. As humble learners ever practicing our professions, we use our minds out of love for God in service of others to his glory. Joyfully, we do this in community. We work as teams. Even for this plenary session, we're trying to model teamwork. Bert and Susan are friends of mine. We've shared meals together in my home, and we've taught others together on multiple continents. I've now framed our discussion of using our minds to love God and others. Bert will extend the conversation about right use of our thought processes. Then Susan will share new data about some of those who are most vulnerable and most in need of our love. Finally, I'll be back for some closing comments. Bert? All right, good morning, GMHC. Uh, my name is Bert Lee, and uh, I'm so excited to be here this morning. Uh, maybe a handful of years ago, I was actually seated where you are, and then sometime thereafter, my family and I had the privilege of moving to the sub-Saharan Africa and serving in medical education and training uh, in the intensive care unit and in the hospital uh, at Kajabi uh, in Kenya. 
I have the unenviable task this morning of to talk to you about data. Essentially, I'm going to have to talk to you about math. Okay? So, 8 o'clock in the morning, math lesson. I apologize. Please pull out your pocket protectors, though. Pull out your calculators. Hold on to your seats. And we're going to spend about 15 minutes together talking about math. So, the first slide, okay, you can see right there, it says how data can open our eyes, moving from hubris to humility and from bias to truth. So, I have a question for you, which is, how do you cure an invisible man? It's a tough question. What you do is you take him to the ICU, Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. I've thought for a while of becoming a stand-up comic, but my wife has convinced me otherwise. So let me continue in my more proper professional role. And the reason why I tell you this is because I work in an ICU. I'm what they call an intensivist. I specialize in people with critical illnesses where their heart, lung, kidneys sometimes fail altogether and they're on the verge of death. And I actually relish that opportunity to intervene and to save lives. It's not just the medical complexity that I enjoy working with. It's also the emotional complexity, the spiritual complexity, the psychological complexity of somebody who is critically ill or the families who love that critically ill person. And I find it a great privilege to be right there in the front lines caring for people at the end of life. But I've I've been able to take that privilege, not only in teaching hospitals and medical schools in the U.S., but I've had opportunities to take those uh, skills and apply them in sub-Saharan Africa. Here is uh, one of the ICU beds in Kajabi Hospital, where I'm teaching uh, our African colleagues uh, during ICU rounds. Now, I have a confession to make. I absolutely love my job. I love every aspect of my field. I love what I have the privilege of doing. And the truth is, and don't tell my boss, but if, if I did not get paid, I would still do what I'm doing, okay? And please don't tell my boss, okay? But part of the reason why I love what I do is not just the medical side, but it's actually the intellectual side. Much of my career has been in medical education. I teach medical students, residents, and fellows, uh, both in the U.S. and in sub-Saharan Africa. And one of my favorite topics to talk about is actually decision-making, biases, Evidence, evidence-based healthcare, and biostatistics. So essentially, I teach how to think as a physician or a future physician. How do you look at data? How do you make sound decisions? How do you know what is true and what is biased information? As much as I enjoy my job, let's admit it, the last 18 months or so, has been really, really difficult. 
we've obviously been hit with a pandemic, and especially those in the intensive care unit have suffered great distress. There's been post-traumatic stress, nurses and doctors wanting to quit, and the top article there talks about 62% of ICU nurses feeling burnt out, and the story in the news about a ICU doctor in Florida who breaks down with tears as he witnesses all these people suffering in the ICU, mostly for avoidable reasons. So that's why I want to talk to you, is that data can open our eyes and give us compassion and knowledge to love God better and love our neighbors better. So let's start with the first uh, uh, half, which is moving from hubris to humility. I'm going to show you some data. These are actually my students, and I want you to kind of look at that data for a second and tell me what you see. Okay? If you look over here, it says test scores on the bottom. These are my students. These are actually doctors in training that are hoping to be intensive care unit doctors. And it's in a course that I personally teach. And this is their test scores from 0 to 100. In other words, on the x-axis is knowledge or competence in this particular subject matter. Now, I want you to think, what is on the y-axis? What explains this funny shape? So clearly the people over here, near the 100, know a lot. They're competent. The people on the left are not so knowledgeable. And you better hope that these aren't going to be your doctors. (laughs) But what's on the y-axis? What's on the y-axis is actually confidence. You ask these people... How do you think you did on your exam? How do you feel about this particular topic? And I want you to look at this and let it sink in for a moment. What does this say? Okay? Think about it. What it says is that those who are least knowledgeable, those who are least competent, actually have the greatest confidence Think about that. That should frighten you. Now, some patients like confident doctors. Okay? That's a good thing probably, but think again. Maybe you should look for doctors who have humility instead. Okay? So I actually use this all the time to talk to my students about humility as a physician. Okay? Now, one of the aspects of this is that this is applied to the COVID pandemic. You may have heard well-meaning people who've actually said that there is no pandemic, that this is a hoax. Well, obviously, I've treated dozens and dozens of people, and I've seen many people die unnecessarily from this illness. It is not a hoax. There is a pandemic. And as you know, these are white flags planted in our national uh, capital for every life that's been lost for uh, due to COVID. 757,000 as of November 9 and still counting. And over maybe 45 million or so around the world. 
And, and you might have heard another overconfident statement from, again, well-meaning people who was talking about uh, three, uh, three uh, congregants uh, in a church that developed uh, COVID. And the statement was, during the service, that three cases is not a pandemic. And where people are laughing at the statement, it's only three people. So I want you to think about that in terms of data. What does three people represent? If this is a megachurch, and, and, and I don't know exactly how big this church is, but, but if three cases happen in the church, let's say that's three cases out of 10,000 people. Okay? Let's do simple math. If it's three cases out of 10,000, how many cases is that per 100,000? Okay? It's per 100,000. You simply multiply that by 10, and hopefully you can figure out that that's 30 cases out of 100,000. Three cases does not sound like a lot, until you realize this data, which is showing you at our worst time in the U.S. pandemic, January 11th, there were 72 cases per 100,000. Three cases does not sound like a lot, but actually for the country, that is a devastating number. This is where this would place if you had three cases. Three cases out of 10,000, you're about to face an explosion. Data is humbling if you understand what it's saying to you. So three people in a 10,000-member church is actually on the verge of an explosion. It should frighten you. Now, I'm going to ask a different question now. I'm going to take this paper. This is a very uh, uh, fancy prop, okay? a piece of paper that I think you have. And, and if you have one, you might even want to pull it out. Okay? And, and what I'd like you to do is pull out a piece of paper and let's just assume that it's one millimeter in thickness. Okay? And then a simple question for you. If I fold this in half, okay, like so, now how thick is this piece of paper? Okay? This is taking you way back to maybe first grade, right? It's one. And now you just put two. Okay? Now, let me ask you, okay? As you can see, I'm not a very tall person. I always want to be taller. So, what if I were to put this in my shoe so I can stand taller? How much taller would I be? With, with a paper the way it is, I'd be one millimeter taller. If I fold it in half, I'd be now two millimeters taller. I'm getting there, right? Now, the question is, how many times do I need to fold so that I could be as tall as Mount Everest? Right? Mount Everest is pretty tall. So take a guess. Do I need to fold it twice? Three times? Ten times? Hundred times? Thousand times? I'm pretty short. Okay? I want you to take a wild guess. Well, if you never thought about this question, that's what's fascinating. Is that, let me show you here, zero fold, one millimeter, which, by the way, is 0.001 meters. If I fold it once, now I have two millimeters, or, two, or 0.002 meters. And I'm not going to walk you through all of this, but let's see how many folds it takes to, to be as tall as Mount Everest. Okay? So here are the numbers from fold two all the way down to 19. Okay? Because you are doubling from 1 to 2, 
2 to 4, 4 to 8, 8 to 16, and so forth, you actually quickly escalate. And if you do the math, by the time you fold this paper 23 times, I'd be as tall as Mount Everest. 23 times. That's all it takes. 23 folds for this thing to just explode. Okay? Think about that. It doesn't take long for data to explode. By the way, it takes 16 more folds than that, or 39 folds, to get to the moon. Okay? If you don't believe me, just take one and start multiplying. Okay? You can do it on your calculator, or you can do it on a piece of paper, and the answers would be shocking to many of you. Okay? So now, notice... This is what the curve looks like. It's an exponential curve. It's exploding. And that's what the COVID pandemic does. It's an exponential curve that's, that's exploding. So when scientists, physicians, epidemiologists hear there are three cases in 10,000 people church, we are frightened. Because we know there are not that many folds left before the pandemic explodes. So three is actually deep into an exponential explosion. Let's go to the second topic, which is moving from bias to truth. How do you get to truth? Now, we have to admit, we all have biases. I have biases. You have biases. It's not just the people who listen to CNN. It's not just those people who listen to Fox News. We all have biases. So how do we know what is truth? Well, when it comes to medical science, we do what's called randomized controlled trials. So let me briefly describe what that looks like. If I want to know if this drug works for whatever condition you might have, then we like to do randomized controlled trials. What does that mean? Well, as as most of you know, randomized controlled trial means we're creating two equal groups of people, group A and group B, and we want the two groups to be essentially identical. Same number of men, same number of women, same number of old people, same number of young people, some with diabetes, some without diabetes. But essentially, we have a large study, so we create two identical groups. So that's randomization. Then the second part is what's called concealed allocation. Fancy word. All that means is one group gets one treatment, another group gets another treatment. And how that gets assigned is done secretly. It's concealed, so you cannot choose. I cannot say, I demand this medicine, or I don't want that medicine. If you participate, it will be a random assignment. That's called concealed allocation. And then there are a series of processes that we put uh, into the study for methodology to minimize bias. If you want to learn more about that, I'm going to be talking about that in evidence-based medicine session as a breakout at 1 o'clock. But for our purposes, then you look at an objective outcome, an outcome that you cannot refute. For example, death. Okay? You're either alive or you're dead. It's pretty objective. So then you look and see what happens. And if few deaths occur with this allocated treatment, in this case the drug, but there are a lot of deaths that occur to this allocated treatment, in this case the placebo, then what we say is, the difference is most likely 
due to the drug. Because these were identical groups of people. Only difference is one group got the drug, the other group got the placebo. And we measure the objective outcome and we analyze, is this likely or unlikely to be effective? So that's why we do randomized trials. This is not about somebody interpreting it. This is not about some political bias. This is not about religious bias. This is simply just looking at data and saying, does this drug work or does it not? Okay? So now let me give you a hypothetical example. Let's say there were a 1,000 people in, in, in one group that's getting the therapy, another group of 1,000 people that's in a control group that is not getting the treatment, and let's say 30 people die here, 50 people die here, so that's 3% and 5% death. And you do a statistical analysis, and it looks like it's statistically significant. Our next part is we look at this idea of fragility, What does that mean? That means we look at the findings, it looks like the drug works, but is this fragile? Is this about to collapse? Is this very weak, thin evidence that we shouldn't put that much stock in it? Or is it very solid, very robust? And that's the idea of fragility. And what we do is we take the number of people who have died in the control group, this 50, and we imagine what happens if it wasn't really 50, but 49 because maybe one person died of some other cause and it really wasn't the actual disease that we're trying to cure. Well, what about it's 48? So, in other words, how much does the outcome need to change for this result to no longer be valid? And that is what we call a fragility index. And so in this example, if this 50 had changed to 48, that is just two people in this arm did not die, the results would no longer be significant. We would say, ah, you know, it doesn't look like the drug works. So in other words, what we do is we take the 50, we subtract the 48, and we calculate what's called the fragility index. Okay? That means if two people had a different outcome than what happened, the results would no longer be valid. So that's a pretty weak information, for example. If that was the, that, if that was the result, I would say only two people, just by chance, might have affected the outcome. So I don't have a lot of confidence. I think it might work, but I'm not that sure. So if you look at all the medical literature, this is what the fragility index looks like. On the bottom, some of these numbers are, are too small. It has a fragility index of zero. Here, a fragility index of one to three. Notice the smaller the number, more fragile it is. So everything on this side of me is fragile data. Everything on that side is more robust or solid data. Okay, So that's how we consider how robust or fragile the data is. So now let me show you the data for the vaccine. Okay, this is the COVID vaccine. So here's one of the articles looking at one of the, uh, of, of one of the vaccines. Um, and what it shows are the following numbers. 14,134 people got the vaccine and 11 people got infected. Those without the vaccine who are given a placebo shot is 14,073 people, and 185 people got infected. Okay? A pretty significant result, it looks like. But now let's look at the fragility. Is this solid evidence? Is this robust? Or is this fragile that I wouldn't put that much confidence in? Okay? If you do the math, it comes out to a fragility of 139. Okay? Now look at the chart. 
Okay? This is all of the modern medical literature about how confident we are whether things work or not. If you notice, a lot of things are on the left side with a low fragility index, which means there are a lot of things that doctors may be doing that, that I don't have that much confidence in. Okay? That should also disturb you. Okay? But look at the stuff on the right. Okay? There are a handful of small things that we do have a lot of confidence in. We're pretty sure this is really good information. And where does the vaccine fit? Vaccine is actually off the chart. It only goes up to 40 here. Okay? This is actually one of the most solid pieces of information that we have in modern medicine that says something works or does not work. Okay? And then our final stage of data is to say, okay, that's an, that's an interesting study, but it's still a, an experiment. It's a laboratory experiment, essentially, right? So what we want to know is, does it work in the real-world settings? So this is what we call phase four, where we look at, now, does it really work in real life? When people are not being you know, uh, carefully monitored by all these study coordinators and nurses and, and research assistants, does it really work in real life? So here's an example from August of 2021, state of Indiana. Uh, happens to be that approximately 50% of eligible people were vaccinated. So half were vaccinated, half were not. Okay? And now, if vaccine didn't work in real life, the number of people who are in the ICU should have some vaccinated people, some unvaccinated people, because it doesn't make a whole lot of difference in the real world. If it worked, you should see very few people who are vaccinated, and that's exactly what we find. In blue, in the, uh, those are hospitalizations on the left side. This part here are all of the unvaccinated people who are hospitalized with a tiny percent. That's the breakthroughs, right? These are the, but the breakthroughs are pretty uncommon compared to those who are unvaccinated. On the right, these are the people who have actually died. Okay? And this is what breaks our heart as doctors and nurses in the ICU. It literally breaks our heart. So I hope you're able to look at data with, with, uh, with open eyes and try to be able to discern hubris or overconfidence, which should lead you to humility and from bias to truth. I think you're familiar with these individuals, but Micah reminds us to walk humbly. Walk humbly. And Paul also reminds us that whatever is true, dwell on these things. And for those of you who are healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, who are tired because of what the pandemic is doing to this country, I would encourage you to let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good, as it says in in Galatians. So thank you very much, and I'm going to introduce now uh, uh, a dear friend, uh, Dr. Susan Hillis. Um, when I was a medical student, I had a chance to uh, write something in my yearbook, and what I wrote in my yearbook was actually a quote that says, pure and undefiled religion is to take care of orphans and widows in their distress. And I'm excited that Dr. Susan Hillis from the CDC is going to talk to us about data about orphans and widows.
I'm so excited and thankful to be here. I want to pray for a minute. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and for your faithfulness and for your invitation to all of us to be a part of your divine appointments set in heaven before the foundation of the world, and that includes today. Lord, we just put this time in your hands, and we are excited that you call us to the places that you are about to enter. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am really excited to be here. I'm excited all of you are here. I myself, uh, along with my husband a number of years ago, served on the mission field in Columbia in the healthcare arena, and we suddenly had a child almost die in our home and had to get out, and then the Lord plopped me right in the middle of the federal government. Little did I know, that's a big whole mission field in itself. But I have been um, happily and thankfully at the CDC for about 30 years, and I um, have a very um, clear sense that I'm standing on the bridge between the government and the church, and my call is always to pull the two closer together. So I'm really thankful about um, being able to be here with you. I'll say a little bit more, Bert. I never knew that about your um, having had that quote in your yearbook. I'll also say that my husband and I have 11 children, and I have 11 grandchildren. When we first got married, people would ask me, like, how many kids do you think you want? And I'd say, oh, I think I could take 12 disciples, but I think 11 is really the 11 all I wanted, because who wants a Judas anyway? But um, (laughs) so um, I I, uh, really am thankful to be here. But I shared with you that personal story because... Um, I I have had this little focus group in our family for many years to see, like, what really happens when you have a number of children who were previously orphaned. Of those 11, eight are adopted at older ages from orphanages. And um, so we have really uh, seen the Lord be faithful to us, and God has a call on my life to orphans around the world uh, of this, I'm sure. And hopefully with your voices, um, that call can be continue to be magnified. So I can go ahead and... Um Let's see. Okay. So I'm going to be talking with you today about COVID effect, about children affected by COVID-19 associated orphanhood and death of caregivers. And honestly, what we're going to be doing is linking love to data and data to love. So it's a perfect follow-on to Phil and Bert. They, it's like the Lord was setting us all up without really knowing what each of us was going to be speaking about. Let me tell you how this all started. It started by listening. I have... Um, Besides serving at CDC, I also am seconded to the State Department and serve at PEPFAR, and so have done a lot of global work in the PEPFAR countries in Africa over the last four years or so, and have developed close friendships with many of my colleagues there. A pastor who's the head of a non-governmental organization called Forgotten Voices sent me a WhatsApp message 18, about, well, about 15 months ago that said this, Susan, I am so worried about what is going to happen to us here in Zambia if COVID hits us the way it has hit, it's hitting you all there in the United States. You see, if COVID takes out the grannies, there is going to be nobody left to take care of the orphans because the parents have been killed by AIDS, so many of them. Oh, my goodness. I would lay in bed at night, and I would remember what Remy said. 
And I would begin to think, uh, I am, my training is, um, I have a doctorate in epidemiology, and so my, I would begin to think epidemiologically how you could model it. And we actually figured out how to do a lot of that kind of modeling with the AIDS orphans epidemic about 20 years ago. And I realized what it would take, even though I didn't know how to create the models, I knew what needed to be done. So I called a colleague of mine at Oxford University and over a crackling Zoom line said to her, Lucy, do you remember what happened to those AIDS orphans? Like, it is going to happen again, and nobody is even thinking about it. And so I said, do you know the smartest COVID modeling in the world, modelers in the world? Because we need them to help us. And she said, yeah, like, I, I do. Like, they're, one of them happens to be my little boy's playgroup. Uh, the parent does. And um, I said, you have got to ask him. Well, he, um, well, he, uh, well, the father was. Well, you ha- you've got to ask him, would he help us? So she says, well, does CDC have any funding for this? And I said, no, we do not have funding, but I have a lot of conviction, and I know you do too. So um, that ended up catalyzing this amazing collaboration between all these organizations that you see at the bottom, Imperial College, Oxford University. We also had Harvard, even though they didn't get permission for their logo, University College of London, World Health Organization, World Bank, USAID, and CDC. And I'll be sharing with you a little bit about what happened after that first question that I heard. It sunk in my heart, and I just took the next clear step. The next clear step for me was just calling Lucy Kluver. Who knows what the next clear step is for each of you? But having walked with the Lord for many years, I assure you, he has the next clear step, and that's all you really need to know today. Okay, so I'm going to talk about three things. Data was really, I think, my love for children and and for Remy and God's call on my life that um, caused me to take that next step to try to get the data. But the intent was never to stop with the data. The intent was always, always to link it to effective solutions that were evidence-based, randomized trial informed, as Bert was talking about. But then those solutions don't help squat if they just sit in all the academic journals. Um, those solutions have to be implemented in real life and make a difference for children around the world. So again, without ever knowing what Bert was going to share, I also had this, um, picture in my initial slides, but I wanted to say a little bit more about what the thing that I have added. And that is, on the back of these little flags, a lot of people just went and wrote their stories. And many of them are about the the husband dying or the wife dying. I lost my husband. I lost my wife. My husband was a wonderful father. My wife was a wonderful mother. How in the world is it that we know that we are in this pandemic with um, surges in cases, every surge in cases among uh, populations that do have not reached herd immunity is followed by a surge in deaths. Every surge in deaths is followed by an invisible hidden pandemic of a surge in orphanhood. And who is caring about that? Well, I think God is inviting us to do it, and even those um, little notes on the back showed that. So I'm going to take you to some of the countries where I've done a lot of work, and that is Kenya, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Uganda. And here on the right, what you see is trends in COVID orphanhood over time. But look right here where they're going straight up. That's when the third surge began to hit a lot of those countries. And you see what I just said. Surge in cases leads to surge in deaths. Surge in deaths leads to surge in COVID-associated orphanhood. But... We, as those who know the Lord, cannot just see the data without seeing the faces in the data. And one of the things I'm really thankful for is 
the combination of um, um, I work with PEPFAR for many years and relationships with people in Africa, and I also serve as a volunteer senior scientific advisor for a global organization called World Without Orphans, a Christian organization. But because of that, I have contact with people on the ground all the time. So a, pa- a different pastor in Zambia sent me a note saying, Susan, can you please help raise the visibility in the world about what is happening? We're having a proliferation in child-headed households like we have not seen it since the time of AIDS. And let me tell you about this story that just happened two weeks ago. This little girl, um, her mom died about um, a year and a half ago. She's two and a half um, of full-blown AIDS. She didn't get enough treatment in Zambia. She was being cared for by her mother, and exactly what Remy feared happened. The grandmother, um, she was, she was being cared for by the grandmother, sorry. Um, the grandmother was home, developed COVID. Nine days into COVID, she drops dead at home, and the little two-and-a-half-year-old is there. Water was on the stove boiling. She uh, toddles over, tries to get the hot water. She doesn't know why her grandmother isn't pouring her her tea. Tries to pour the hot water, and it pours all over her scalp and her upper body and scalds her horribly. She starts screaming. The neighbors hear. They run, get the pastor, who's my friend Billy Chandway, and and he and his wife go take her to the hospital and then try to start getting to find family. So all I want you to see is every time there's data, Bert's data, my data, any data, the love in the data is what the Lord is inviting us into to discover the faces of the people that are impacted by those data. So um, now let's go on to the next slide I want to show you about. This hidden pandemic that I've been talking about, the purple are the COVID deaths globally from the beginning of the pandemic, March 1st, to the end of uh, May. And the blue is the um, global COVID orphanhood pandemic that has been hidden. And basically, it's a two-to-one ratio, even though now it's accelerated so much that we just recalculated it, and, and it's a lot worse. I'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want you to talk about, what I want to talk about is, Bert, you talked about this escalation um, of data, and I, uh, that's what I'll show here. So in the first 10 months of the pandemic, there were 1.8 million global deaths, and there were 0.9 million children affected by the death of their mother or their father or their grandparent caregiver who lived in their home and was responsible for their needs and nurture. So that's 10 months. In the next five months, we doubled the damage in half the time. The number of COVID deaths doubled to 3.6 million, and the number of children affected by orphanhood or death of their grandparent caregivers doubled to 1.8 million. It was really upsetting. We, re- we reported it in the Lancet, and it did get the editor's choice for the July issue. And um, so I want to say one other thing, and that is, if you want to really make big things happen, you have to go together. Like, we, we had to assemble the right people to work together on this to be able to make a difference, and there are all these organizations that you see here at the bottom. So um, we have to, as we're beginning to think about, like, where is this orphanhood occurring and what should we be doing about it? We care about the high burden and the, and the um, high surge countries. So these are just the high burden countries. Um, as uh, These are numbers are a little bit old now because they're around the end of April. But these are just in purple, the six countries that already at the end of April, 14 months into the pandemic, have between 100,000 and 200,000 children newly orphaned. And I want to say one little thing that was not all part of my talk, but um, there is a family in the back that I noticed that you have your children with you. And I was so excited to see some kids here because um, having had many kids that we adopted ourselves, 
There is nothing like the voice of a child to make a difference in the world. So well done to you parents who brought your kids and for you um, you kids who are here. You just never know what God is going to do with you because you are here and you're learning about this. So um, let's go on to the next slide. So uh, I wanted to tell you, this is our Lance paper using data through the end of April, and these data are as of about a month ago, the end of September. So we had three categories. Orphanhood is the death of one or both parents, the UNICEF definition, because even the death of one parent has serious consequences. Lost primary caregivers is either the death of a parent or it's called custodial grandparent, the granny who died who was taking care of the little AIDS orphan that I talked about. That is the grandparent who is caring for the child and raising the child in the absence of the parents, primary caregiver. And loss of primary or secondary caregivers, there are increasingly around the world multi-generational households. In Asia, 51% of children live in multi-generational households. And so we also count the death of one co-residing grandparent or auntie or someone who is also living in the home and helping take care of the children. But you see, we went from see the end of um, April from 1.8 million children who were orphaned to 3.2 million, from 1.9 million children who had lost either the granny caregiver or grandfather um, or the parent, 1.9 million to 3.4 million. And from children who had lost either from 2.7 million now to 5 million. And again, these numbers are a little bigger than I had showed earlier in the double the damage and half the slide because we have new mortality data that has allowed us to update our estimates. And these are the closest estimates that we have. But basically, where we are today is there are now 5.2 million children in the world orphaned by COVID. And that is a, essentially a one-to-one correlation with five million COVID deaths. And you guys, like we need to be a voice for the voiceless. And um, I've just seen in my work that God is letting that happen because there has been such widespread media coverage of first the Lancet paper, and then we just published in pediatrics last month the U.S. COVID orphanhood situation. And everyone was shocked at CDC because that U.S. paper had 665 million views in the media coverage. And so sometimes as God calls you to do something and just do the next step, he will honor that and he will multiply it in an Ephesians 3.20 exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all you can ask or imagine way. So again, this is what I just talked about. Our updated estimates using new available data show a minimum of 5 million children experience death of a father or mother or grandparent caregiver in the pandemic. As big as the numbers are, they are only minimum estimates because in so many countries you don't have either a testing done and you don't have deaths reported. But even from those data, that means in the last uh, five to six months, one child is orphaned every six seconds. Either they're orphaned or lose their grandparent caregiver. So addressing the loss these children has experienced really needs to be a priority. Uh, You know, the question is that I struggle with, like in bed at night still now, is um, will these children that are pandemic affected remain hidden? And um, I uh, compare to what happened with the um, global AIDS pandemic, sorry, 
that, uh, and I'm so sorry, a picture that I wanted to show is not showing. The um, first year into the global AIDS pandemic in 1990, where the orphans were first counted, there were 903,000. And roughly the first year into the COVID pandemic, there were already 1.1 million. So already we're outstripping that, but there aren't really resources. Let's talk about solutions. Preventing death, preparing families, and protecting children, the three Ps. All of these have randomized trial evidence because randomized trial evidence is important not only for therapeutics but also for social issues, as we will see. Risks for children affected by orphanhood include they have an increased risk of poverty, mental health distress, child abuse, family violence, school um, dropout, and sexual health risks. And we know what works to address those. Certainly preventing the deaths of the caregivers here and the vaccines that we talked about are important. This is a logic model. In case any of you want to work on this more, you could, you could use it. Um, preparing family-based care and avoiding institutions. Um, orphanages do not really help children. They actually hurt them. And what children really need is family-based care. And then protecting children from fo- poverty, adversity, and violence. And what you really want is for children to reach their full potential in safe and loving families. So I'm going to go for just a minute um, through those three solutions and talk a little bit about what that means. We certainly want to advance vaccine access. We want to advance risk reduction measures, including testing and masking, et cetera. We want to really, around the world, try to increase the access to safe and timely clinical care, which is really challenging. I'll be talking about that at 10 o'clock in one of the breakouts. And then um, cooperation together to really address vaccine nationalism, which is still alive and well, unfortunately. We want to prepare safe and loving families, kinship, foster, adoption families. And one of the main things I think we need to do, like all of you are going to be in a clinical setting somewhere or a public health setting. We just need to ask every time someone is really sick and in the hospital or every time someone has died and the family is there, are there children in the home of this person and is anyone helping them? Because right now we have done all this modeling, but we don't have any data in any country about who these children are except a little data out of Brazil, and it's largely missing, and we certainly need to strengthen the support systems. This picture is of a young girl that an organization – that. Um, an, Uh, a group posing as an adoption agency in India tried to go after this little girl's um, father died and the mother was um, mentally ill and said they were going to adopt her, but they were really trying to get her into trafficking. And one of my colleagues with World Without Orphans intervened, saw it, um, referred them to the authorities, and it was all stopped. But this is like, this is huge problem. The problem is huge. So here, I want, in terms of protect, We know that there are evidence-based, cost-effective, what we call accelerators for orphaned children. And the accelerators are the three circles in the middle. Um, Parenting support, safe schools, and cash transfers have all been identified as being effective at protecting those orphaned children from violence, abuse, and exploitation, and a number of the other consequences like mental health problems, high-risk sexual behaviors, dropping out of school, etc., So um, those three, let me just talk about those for a minute. Parenting support. A lot of the randomized trial evidence came out of South Africa, and now it's been expanded to all over the world. And what was initially done in skills-building sessions with parents and small groups or in their homes now can be done by a hybrid of virtual and human interaction from cell phones and phone mentoring. 
Um, we also know that keeping young people in schools is really important. There are horrible epidemics of teen pregnancy around the world that are happening because COVID has kept young girls out of school and boys out of school. I, I cannot tell you how much I'm hearing about this. Thousands and thousands of young girls. Those are going to be the next orphans when the 14-year-old is raped and has a child and then can't take care of it. So keeping kids in school is really important. Cash transfers, um, the, there's increasingly the World Bank and others have randomized trial evidence that if you combine cash transfers to the poorest families plus parenting support, you significantly decrease all those risks of violence and other consequences that I was talking about. Who needs to be involved in prevent, protect, prepare, protect everybody? And certainly quality accessible education is key, whether it's medical education or the students and access to public health as others as well. Finally, action, implementing responses in the field during COVID-19. Because, listen, you guys, if our love gets, leads us to find the data, and if the data leads us to understand the solutions, randomized trial evidence of solutions, what's evidence-based? If we do not figure out how to implement it in the field and sustain it and scale it, what good are we really doing? So this is all about implementing responses in the field. And what's been amazing is the Lord has let me pull in two Christian organizations to this collaboration. World, uh, the World Without Orphans group mostly works with the um, evangelical Protestant groups around the world. And Maestro International mostly works with the Catholic ones. Our lead from Maestro met with the Pope about all this. Um, a week ago, which is just shocking. But um, so what I want to tell you is, like, if you can be in that sweet spot of collaboration between academics, multilaterals, bilaterals, and the, the strongest faith leads, there is so much more that can happen. But what the um, all of the other governmental and multilateral and bilateral groups are seeing is the unique contribution of the faith networks. And even the United Nations has described this. They have spiritual capital, social capital, and access capital. Spiritual, um, for a secular group, would be um, classified or described as they understand what, how to um, uh, pursue what is meaningful in life, and everyone values that. Social capital, the relationships of trust through those congregations and small groups that we're always involved in. And then access capital, faith leaders around the world to this day are among the most trusted. And when you have something like an orphan or a vulnerable child or a COVID pandemic, you need trusted people if you're going to have impact. This is just an example of World Without Orphans. I had mentioned them. Within just three months, the World Without Orphans Network collaboration was able to engage 20 million families with these COVID-19 evidence-based parenting tips because they had all the church networks that they could very, very quickly mobilize. These are examples of how just in Malawi they mobilized either through faith group fraternities. Um, These are pastors that meet monthly to try to care for their communities through WhatsApp groups. WhatsApp is alive and well around the world church and community leaders, small groups, radio, and home visits. So all of these platforms that you can employ to leverage effective interventions are pretty amazing. So in conclusion, I would just say that um, we also have the opportunity, as we're educating many, whether it's medical students or nursing students or epidemiologists or academics or communities, 
to equip other faith leaders with us who may not be in health, but who can really contribute what is going to be most needed for the orphaned and vulnerable child and their family, for example. We do know what works. I've talked about these three accelerators. And um, those have we have really worked to try to use some of the evidence-based trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy principles and in one simple tip sheet begin to get make some of those available to faith leaders who are helping the families, the widows left behind after the um, husband or wife dies. This parenting tip, when someone we love dies, helping caregivers support the child. Because, you know, you have all these discourage parents trying to care for children who have left behind. What my friend Remy was worried about that he called me about when he sent me the WhatsApp message about, it, it has been happening in Zambia. This is a grandmother that Remy is helping. Her daughter was a nurse in a hospital in Zambia. She caught COVID and died. And her daughter left behind all of these grandchildren, including a teenager who's pregnant, And now you can see this hopelessness on the grandmother's face. But what Remy is doing is he is trying to gather food and meet regularly along with the NGO he leads and his church with the grandmothers in the community, pray for them and encourage them that they are not alone. I started with the story of Remy. I went on to that slide of all these numbers and I show you the little two and a half year old. But I'm going to end with a story about me, and I'm sure you have stories about you, and that is where you can start now. So um, my husband and I live in Atlanta, and my husband loves alpacas, and so he has three alpacas in a field in the backyard in a fence. And, you know, we are, you know, people a lot of times will see strangers out staring at the fence, staring at the alpacas. So one day I saw this young girl out there. I walked out to say hello, and her first statement to me was, oh, my goodness, the heart that holds my daddy's ashes is broken. I have to fix it. So, like, I'm shocked. And I said, um, like, what's your name again? And we met each other. And I said, well, like, what? Let me help you. So, basically, it was a little locket. It had come undone. And she was able to screw back into her necklace. And I said, well, do you mind just telling me, like, what happened? She goes, oh, Susan, my, my daddy just died four weeks ago of COVID. And I am heartbroken. And um, I told her a little bit about what I'm doing and what my work is. And I said to her, people need to hear your voice. I'm getting a lot of people wanting to interview me. It was just right after the, um, it was right, actually it was about three days before the U.S. paper was going to be published. And I said, like, if they want to know about what it's really like, could I let them interview you? And she goes, oh, yes, I would love for them to interview me. I would love to tell them this. She's 16. I know that most people with COVID recover, even though my daddy did not recover. But I want to tell those those journalists you're talking with me about, I will never recover. My daddy will not be here to walk me down the aisle. He will not be here to take pictures with me before prom next week. He will not be with me for another single important event in my whole life. I want them to know somebody needs to begin to see and hear us. I thought, oh, my goodness. But um, so what has happened is she she and I become friends, and it um, ends up that they only live about 10 minutes away from us. And um, she was interviewed by the New New York Times and the Washington Post along with her family. So, like, her voice is going out. 
this young girl who is brave enough to say what the situation was and what she needed. All of us can think of people like that in our lives now. And if you don't have people like those that in your life now, somebody that you know does, and you can pray that God um, encourages them wherever they are. I want to say one other thing that I forgot to say on the slide when I was talking about because I realized we were going over a little bit in time. And that is, um, let me just go back again to this beginning to ask when someone's sick or dies, are there children in the home and is anyone caring for them? What we are really advocating is that this begins to be a standard field on data forms in hospitals, in cities, in states, in countries, because if it were a standard field on the data form, you could actually have um, that automatically programmed to send a referral to have someone check and see if the child or the young person is doing okay. So then my my, um, last slide is to thank you and share with you that I I, um, read this verse uh, two days ago, and I think it's a fitting blessing to leave us all with. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Thank you very much. By now, the messages of this plenary session should be clear. By now, we conceal the two-part message of this session in our minds and in our hearts. What's the message? First, love God, even with your mind, especially with your mind. Second, love others, including and perhaps especially those who have lost a loved one to COVID-19. This isn't rocket science, but it's also not natural to live out our love this way. Why is it so hard to apply these easy lessons? In healthcare, we tend to get very busy, and we honor busyness instead of confessing it as sin. We feel prideful when someone asks how we are, and we tell them how busy we are, as if being overly busy wasn't a sign of sinfully bad planning and prioritization. And in this 2021 year, we tend to be hyper-stimulated. We imagine that we're actually capable of multitasking effectively. Kindergartners learn to stop, look, and listen before crossing the street. Perhaps adults need to relearn the necessity of pausing, stopping and looking and listening. We need to stop over-exalting busyness. We need to listen instead of rushing ahead all the time. What was it God said in Psalm 46? Oh yeah, be still. First he told us to be still in this psalm, and then he said he would be exalted in all the earth. Do we want to see God exalted in all the earth? Yes, that's why we're here at GMHC. Maybe we should start by being still, pausing, listening, recognizing God as God, and stop serving selfishly sinful schedules. Be still, Mary or Martha. Spend time quietly loving God, learning from him. Loving God with our minds implies that we use our brains to plan our schedules. Loving God with our minds means we say no to some good things and, of course, to all bad things. Loving God with our minds means we choose to do the right things. I asked an adolescent patient what he liked about summer. His response was enthusiastic. Camp! I said, why? He said, we had no internet for two weeks. It was great. Did he change his connecting habits after camp? No. 
Once he was back in the car to head home, he decided he couldn't live without being connected all the time. Loving God with our minds might mean choosing to regularly disconnect from devices and connecting to God, free of distractions. Loving God with our minds might mean choosing to put devices away when we are talking to people. I suspect that we've all laughed at other people when, with eyes focused on a phone, they walk into things or walk right past someone without noticing. Looking at my phone recently as I stepped off an elevator, I could see a silhouette in my peripheral vision and turn to avoid bumping into the person, only to hurt my shins on the bench with which I collided. Some of you are listening to me and watching me and doing email and checking your schedule for the next session all at the same time. Pause. Be still. Rest in knowing Jesus. Rest in God's love. We can choose to disconnect at times. We can control our inputs. We can limit the noise yelling at us all the time. We can stop our busyness, turn off some of the techno noise bombarding us, and actually pay attention to God. Then we can use our minds to love him and to love others. Be still and know that I am God. Love God with all your mind and your neighbor, especially these days, the vulnerable neighbor who has lost a family member to COVID. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a loving God. Thank you that you loved us first. Thank you that you give us the privilege of knowing you and of loving you. Thank you that you give us opportunities to love others. Thank you for this great conference where so many of us can gather to consider what you're doing around the world and what those things are that you want us to prioritize as we use our minds to discern your will, as we use our minds to learn and to love. Thank you that we can use our minds to love you. Thank you that we can use our minds wisely and appropriately in loving others. Thank you that you are building your church around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a trio, y'all. I mean, can we thank them again? All of the things... And I am so struck by the way that the Holy Spirit just wove all of their messaging and teaching so beautifully together. Some things that stuck, um, that stood out to me, um, when Dr. Phil said, the world needs godly medical workers who love God and love His people with their minds and service. He said over and over, use our brains. Dr. Lee, I don't know about y'all, but that joke that he started with, I was in the back all by myself like, that is hilarious. The whole, I, the invisible man in the ICU, I'm probably going to use it, Dr. Lee. This, um, he reminded us um, how to use our minds to look at data, to make sound judgments in caring for people. He did a, the most beautiful job of taking data and saying this is what we use to better care for people. He said data can open our eyes to compassion. We needed to hear that. And then he took us on this journey about the importance of humility and the importance of truth. So helpful. 
Dr. Hillis, all that energy that she brought, these were some things that I'm going to carry with me. Um, Even in her prayer, y'all, she said, you call us to places you are about to be. We want to be there. We want to be there. She... um, was, did the sweetest job of reminding us of orphans and widows. Y'all, that, that thought about the grannies in Zambia is, is gonna roll in my mind and in my prayers. That is, that is powerful. And she said, um, the love in data is what the Lord is calling us into. Y'all, that there is love in data is like, Making my brain come out my nose. And then it said, then she said, take the next clear step. Take the next clear step. And that's what we're all here eager to see what is our next clear step.